Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Welcome back to Vox Conversations. I'm Sean Ramos from today on the show, Vox's book critic Constance Grady is going to talk with another Voxer, Anna North, all about her new book, Outlawed. It's a conversation all about creating an alternative history, reimagining the Western, and having fun with the usually fraught roles around gender and identity. Here's Constance. Anna North is a reporter on Vox's identity team. She is also the author of Outlawed, which is a new novel that's been selected by Reese Witherspoon's book club and optioned for TV by Amy Adams's production company. Outlawed deals with some intense ideas, but it's also just a really fun book to read. It's a Western about a group of gender nonconforming outlaws and the safe haven they build for themselves at the legendary hole-in-the-wall camp. The characters in the book are outlaws because of what makes them different. Their gender identity, their ability to bear children, their race, their class. But at the hole in the wall, these differences stop being something that limits their world. Instead of being restrictive reminders of the way the rest of the country wants them to be, their differences start to become something playful and fun. And that's what makes the book itself so fun to read. So, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. We seem to be in a moment where we're all talking a lot about identity groups and what they mean and whether they're too restrictive. So I wanted to talk about how our identities can be sources of joy and pleasure and not just arenas of endless discourse and arguing and threats. I really want to know, how do we stay grounded in the seriousness of thinking about our identities and all of the baggage and trauma they can carry with them and still give ourselves room to play? These are such good questions, Constance. Um, you know, first of all, thank you so much for, you know, your kind and generous words about the book. I'm just so, feel so honored and grateful to talk about it with you. I mean, I think 
You know, when I was writing the book, I thought a lot about sort of these questions of play and fun. And I thought about it from a lot of different angles because on the one hand, you know, I set out to write a Western, right? This is a book. It's set in an alternate version of 1894. You know, it's set in what is now Wyoming and North Dakota, a little bit in Colorado. And it does play with the tropes of Western novels. And I think, you know, for all the problems of the Western genre that we can talk about, you know, people turn to Westerns, people turn to genre fiction in general a lot of times for fun and because these tropes are exciting and because these are adventure stories. So I really wanted to maintain a sense of fun throughout the book. And I, I hope that came across. When you talk about identity and play, there's so much there because I think for one thing, we do have to think about sort of, you know, who has the privilege to be able to play with identity, who has the privilege to be able to have fun with these concepts. And I do recognize my own privilege as a white writer. And I thought about that a lot when I was writing and wanting to, at the same time that I was trying to tell a story with a lot of joy in it, also wanting to try to make sure that I was trying to give as much honor as possible to people whose stories aren't necessarily my own. I thought a lot about writing across difference. A lot of writers have written about this much more eloquently than I could about this idea of how do you sensitively write about people who have different identities from yours and have more marginalized identities than yours. So that was all sort of swirling in my head as as I wrote. And one thing I chose is, for instance, with Ada, the main character, who, when we start out, she's a young apprentice midwife who has been married for a year and she's unable to have children. And so she's sort of, she's very stigmatized because of that. And she has to figure out kind of how to make her way in the world and how to become safe. With her as my point of view character, I made some choices in terms of identity. I made her white. You know, I'm white. I made her a woman, a cisgender woman. I, I identify as a cisgender woman. So certain things where I felt like perhaps I could write across difference for non-point of view characters, but perhaps for my point of view character, I shouldn't try to work so far outside my own identity. Um, mm. And I mean, these are really vexed sort of concepts, and I think different writers can have really different ideas about them. But those are sort of some of the ways that I came at some of this. Yeah, definitely. The idea of writing across difference has been the object of a lot of very intense and fraught discourse over the past year, probably most famously with the American Dirt example, the big book from January of 2020, truly a different era in many ways. <laughs> that was written by a non-Chicana author about a Mexican migrant family and was critiqued as being inauthentic. The line I will always remember from American Dirt is when a Mexican character is looking at like a falling apart bridge and goes, ah, our tax pesos at work. So that, I guess, is the line that people want to avoid falling into. But before we get more specific about the book and the way that you're writing into these questions of identity, let's just start with a quick overview. So for those people joining us who haven't read it yet, what is Outlawed about? Totally. So Outlawed is, one way to think of it is as a revisionist Western. It's an alternate history. It's set in 1894. And in the world of the book, there was a devastating flu pandemic that happened in 1830. There actually was a flu pandemic in 1830, but it didn't destroy the United States. Um, however, in the world of my book, it does. 
you know, the the pandemic kills so many people that the United States government basically ceases to exist. The state government ceased to exist. The descendants of former Americans live in sort of independent towns dotted throughout what was once the United States and its territories. And in the wake of this, you know, devastating public health crisis, they become really obsessed with reproduction. They they want to replace, to some degree, those they've lost. And also sort of people put a lot of stock in the kind of hope that comes uh, for some with having children. And so it becomes an enormous cultural obsession to the point that people who are infertile, especially women who are infertile, are deeply, deeply stigmatized. Quote, unquote, barren women can be hanged as witches. So we follow Ada, who is a young apprentice midwife. As I mentioned, she gets married. And then after a year of marriage, when she is not pregnant, she's in grave danger. You know, she needs to flee. And she ends up uh, meeting the mysterious hole-in-the-wall gang of outlaws led by the kid. And she has to decide sort of if she's going to join up with this gang, if she's going to go along with a dangerous plan they have. And sort of how she's going to not just keep herself safe, but also try to kind of realize her potential as a person and make a way for herself in this world that doesn't really want to let her make her way. She has such a good arc. Uh, It's so fun to read. It's so satisfying. I can't get over the scene where she is building her bomb out of horse dung. Like, it's so good. (laughs) And of course, the 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 hole-in-the-wall gang is not just a traditional outlaw gang, right? They're led by the kid who's non-binary. And, and who are some of the other figures we see? Yeah, so I, I, to some degree, I did base the Hole in the Wall gang on the real-life Hole in the Wall gang, who are a real gang of outlaws in the 1890s. You know, they were sort of a loose-knit group, so different folks came in at different times, but Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid um, were parts of the gang. The gang also included women. Um, you know, there were female outlaws who would come in and out of this camp. And so I thought about that too. But so the gang, as you say, is led by the kid. I mean, the kid is hardly even based on the Sundance Kid, but certainly the name I took from there. As you say, the kid does not use pronouns, um, doesn't use gender pronouns, and, you know, is sort of a very charismatic leader who holds the gang together, you know, but also might put them in danger. There's Cassie, who is sort of the kid's second in command. Again, the name is a little bit based on Butch Cassidy. Not that much else about this character, um, who I have a lot of affection for, is, is really based on that historical figure, you know, but she's a key part of the gang and sort of the brains of it in certain ways. You know, although the kid also, they, they all are, they all are the brains of the gang, I guess, in different ways. We have Elsie, a sharpshooter, um, Agnes Rose, who's a con artist. One big inspiration, in addition to the real-life hole-in-the-wall gang, were heist movies. Mm -hmm. And especially when I was sort of putting together, you know, early scenes of the gang kind of celebrating together, scenes of the gang, like, doing crimes together, because they also do crimes. I was thinking a lot about, you know, the part of the heist movie where they sort of intro each person and their different skill. And, like, you'll see, like, you know, the person, like, hacking into the computer database Mm -hmm. or the other person, like, crawling through the air ducts, you know. So I wanted to get some of that energy in there, totally. Yeah, that's so fun. I love that. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how the development of this book took place. So you've been working on this book for quite a long time. I think you said that you started it even before you started at Vox. So when did you start this book and what was the initial spark of the idea? 
Yeah, that's right. I've been working on it for a long time. And I, I definitely started it. Um, yeah, before I started here. You know, the initial spark is like pretty far from what actually ended up the finished product. I I was traveling, I was in New Hampshire, and I visited a Shaker dwelling, which the Shakers were a religious sect. Mm. They lived separately from mainstream society. And they didn't have children. They didn't marry, they were celibate. But yeah, so they're, they're known for these beautiful buildings, you know, these buildings that people would live kind of communally together in. And I was just really interested in this building and really interested in this place. And it was also a time when, you know, my husband and I were sort of starting to think about, well, should we have a child? Now I have a toddler. So it was a time when I think these, you know, our sort of like cultural ideas about reproduction were very much on my mind. And I was interested in the idea of a group of people who had opted out of that and why would they opt out? So that was like the very first germ of the idea. And I was writing about like, gangs of people and they're out in the woods and they don't have children and, you know, they're sort of separate from society, kind of like wasn't coming together and it wasn't coming together. And then I thought, you know, who else lives separately from society out in the woods? Well, outlaws. And as soon as I sort of thought about that and I started to think about Westerns, then a lot of threads started to come together for me. And I sort of, you know, got the inkling that I like could actually have a book and it slowly started to become what it is now. That's so fun. So it starts off with the idea of opting out. And then sort of slowly we see it in the development that some of these people are opting out because they don't want kids. And some of them are just unable to have kids like Ada, but are penalized for it regardless. And yet they're still stuck in sort of the same place as far as society is concerned. Yeah, I mean, I I think one interesting way at like of sort of coming at some of these themes is through the title. This is the first book of mine where I didn't come up with a title like right at the very beginning of the process. I mean, with my first two books, I sort of like had the title right away. And like the working title that I used for my drafts was the title of the finished book. With this, it was like a little bit less like that. And I remember sending, you know, like a doc file of like a bunch of possible titles to my writing group, you know, like a few years back or whenever this was and having them vote. And the winner among the writing group and also crucially my agent was outlawed. And I think something that that kind of gets at is that this is not necessarily uh, a choice for all the people in the gang, that they have been outlawed. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, for some of them, to varying degrees, they may have varying freedoms and varying abilities to decide what their path in life is going to be. But in a lot of cases, they ended up as part of the whole in the wall gang because something about their identity is not okay. And something about their identity is essentially illegal within their society. Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted to play with that idea, you know, the idea that like... You know, yes, they also are forced to do outlaw things in order to survive, but the initial act of outlawing was not was not something they decided on. So they are thrown out of society, not necessarily out of choice, but because society has chosen to make their bodies illegal. Right. So jumping from there, your day job is to report on identity for Vox. So how does that work inform this novel that deals with so much about gender identity and questions of race and class and sexuality um, and vice versa? Totally. So I was initially hired at Vox as our gender reporter, and I still do a lot of that work. And a lot of my work, you know, involves questions around gender, especially during the pandemic. I've been transitioning a little more to 
focusing sort of on care work writ large, whether that's reproductive health care or I've been doing a lot of work on child care and education as those have become such such huge themes ever more so during this pandemic. You know, there's always been a lot of cross-pollination, I think, between my fiction and my journalism. I've been doing both for a long time. But I think especially with this book, there's been a lot of sort of fruitful overlap in terms of reproductive health. You know, in my work at Vox, I cover abortion rights and contraception and also issues around childbirth, maternal mortality, maternal health. All that stuff is really important to the book because the book is about people who are stigmatized for infertility, and it's also about midwives. So Ada, um, you know, is learning to be a midwife. Her mother's a midwife. While I was writing the book, I learned a lot more about midwives and have really kind of continued that education even since finishing the book because it just remains so important. I mean, you know, something that was fascinating and also concerning to watch at the beginning of the pandemic was the way that pregnant people, you know, were forced into a bind where they, in many cases, had to give birth under conditions that they might not feel necessarily safe or that might not at all be their ideal. A lot more folks began to consider home birth. Mm -hmm. And then there were a lot of questions around who can access home birth. Home birth often isn't covered by insurance. So perhaps someone who is well-to-do maybe can make this choice, but other folks were going into hospitals where they were worried about getting COVID-19. So I, I just think that questions around whose body is valued and who receives care, especially at some of these most vulnerable points in life, uh, these have been really huge questions for my reporting, especially this year, and are also really big questions in Outlawed. Okay, let's take a quick break, but when we're back, we talk about how the Hole in the Wall camp is a place where the outlaws can step outside of society's strictures and celebrate who they are. And Anna will read us an excerpt showing us just that after the break. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. 
and it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. One of the things that makes the book so fun and joyful to read is that you sort of have this possibility once you arrive at the hole in the wall camp that identity doesn't always have to be this force for a restriction and that, you know, once you leave the society that has made your body illegal and create your own society, it can be this place that celebrates your body and your identity and all of what comes with that. So I would love it if you could actually read us a little bit of the book, um, maybe from the section where Ada first makes it to the hole in the wall camp. Absolutely. So I have that bookmarked. My throat was scraped raw and my whole body aching when, out in the black to the left of the road, I heard someone playing a fiddle. The music was lively and dreamy at the same time, a tune I'd never heard, but that reminded me of stories Mama told us when we were very little about pirate ships in the time before America, about elves and goblins meeting at midnight in the woods. I was afraid my senses might have left me and I might be dreaming or imagining the sound, but with nothing else to guide me, I had no choice but to follow the song. I scrambled down a steep hill and through thick brush that scratched my legs, but the fiddle grew louder, and soon I saw a flicker of firelight in the distance and even heard voices shouting and laughing. A few minutes more and I saw the fire, tall as a man and wide as a wagon, and the fiddler standing in its light, eyes shut and face upturned as though in prayer, bow hand moving furiously. The fiddler was black-haired and brown-skinned and garlanded head-to-toe with wildflowers, black-eyed Susans and Bluets and Sweet William. I took a few steps nearer, not sure how or if I should announce myself. And against a tree not ten yards from my shoulder, I saw two people kissing and touching each other with a hunger I remembered only dimly from the early days of my marriage. The woman was short and wide-hipped, with thick dark hair and a crown made of flowers. Her lover was tall and slim and pale, his fingers in her hair almost delicate in their movements. I ducked behind a tree. I knew enough not to surprise a pair of kissing strangers in a place they'd never been. Peeking out around the trunk, I could see the shadows of dancers cast giant size by the firelight on the ground below, and then the dancers themselves. A tall man in a buckskin jacket trimmed with bells, and a woman in a calico dress with her hair in two neat braids. The woman in particular was a masterful dancer, leaping and twirling in her partner's arms, and then, when he released her, turning a series of backflips that had even the lovers turning around to cheer. When she finished her acrobatic routine, she landed as easily on both feet as though she'd been playing hopscotch, her face in the light of the bonfire both serious and full of joy. Finally, sitting in a wooden rocking chair at the edge of the firelight, I saw a handsome, dark-skinned person dressed in a top hat and tails like the mare of Fairchild wore on festival days. Flowing around this person's shoulders and down onto the ground below was a cape made entirely of flowers, yellow and orange and blue and purple, so large and complex that it must have taken many days and many hands to stitch it all together. The person was drinking from a champagne glass, and when the dancer with the bells approached to refill it and both leaned a little into the firelight as he poured, I saw that the person's hat was a Colorado pinch front like the one the kid was said to wear. The person took a sip, laughed at something the dancer with the bells said, and gave a theatrical roll of the eyes. Was this the kid and these people his gang? Or had I stumbled upon some other group celebrating in hole-in-the-wall territory? I was planning how to approach to resolve these questions when someone grabbed me by the wrist and dragged me into the firelight. I'll stop there. Oh, it's so good. 
And it's such a wonderful contrast, too, because Ada spent so much of the beginning of this book just being miserable and mistreated and starved and people are being so mean to her. And all because she is physically incapable of doing what her world believes women must do. Um, And then she comes into this just fantastic carnival space with people of different genders and races and classes and they're dancing and draped in flowers and kissing. And it's just so striking how much we get to play here with these categories of gender and identity, which the opening of the book and also just the world we live in so often primes us to think about as sites of oppression and misery. So to go like really big and broad here, how do we begin to go about thinking of them as places where we can instead experiment and enjoy ourselves? Yeah, I mean, these are really big questions. I'm thinking back just to that scene that I just read in particular, um, and it's something I worked on a lot with my writing group. And I remember something that we talked about was sort of what are going to be the reader's expectations if they're going to meet an outlaw gang. And I think especially, you know, if the readers have any sort of facility with the Western genre, maybe they're expecting some sort of like grizzled men, like drinking whiskey and spitting, you know, I don't know, and like kind of dirty and they have like five o'clock shadow. And so there's um, someone with a Stetson. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, the flowers in particular and this sort of festival atmosphere, I wanted to cut against that a little bit, you know, and show beauty there, you know, and a particular kind of beauty too, that I think you know, you wouldn't necessarily be seeing in a sort of very conventional, like male-dominated Western story. So, you know, in terms of kind of celebrating this sense of play, I think it's such it's such a good question. And something that I've loved sort of after this book came out is going back and reading more Westerns because I wouldn't let myself read or even watch any Westerns while I was working on this. I was too worried about being influenced. Like I read a lot of history um, and I visited Wyoming and I read a lot about midwifery and about home remedies and things like that. But I, I wouldn't let myself read actually like Western fiction. And, mm-hmm. and then once I was done, I realized that there has really been this whole sort of move toward revisionist Westerns, like before I was working on this book and while I was working on it. So, I mean, one of the biggest ones that I'm thinking of is How Much of These Hills is Gold, Mm -hmm. which is a wonderful novel that came out last year and that Barack Obama put on his reading list, which is well-deserved and looks at a Chinese-American family in the California gold rush period. But like that capsule description doesn't really do it justice at all. It's such a beautiful novel. The setting is just so incredibly well-evoked. And it also just plays on so many levels with identity and with land and with ownership. The the question of how to address these kinds of big ideas in art is such an interesting Mm. one. But I think that we're seeing a really large swath of writers kind of trying to come at some of these quote-unquote American myths and say, Mm -hmm. you know, like, what has ever been the American West, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the West was never was never West to the people who lived there originally. So what does it mean to live on this land, you know, to live on the stolen land, essentially? What does it mean to live as someone who's like not supposed to live on this land or maybe who has never been given permission to live on any land? And then how within all of that do you create joy? And do you create a sense of family? And do you create a sense of home? 
Mm-hmm. I think how much of these hills is gold in particular, like really asks that question about home and what is a home to someone who has been forced out of somewhere, you know, or what is a home when you have an immigrant experience? Something that's been really great about being done with this book is looking at the ways that other writers have sort of asked and begun to answer these questions. And Mm -hmm. I think there's just like a real incredible wealth right now of writing that it's like it does reckon with the sins of American history and of colonialism, but it's not just about trauma, but also about how do you create joy? How do you lay down good memories? How do you make a world for yourself? How do you make a place for yourself? So not just a reckoning, I guess, but also mm-hmm. like an opening outward and a looking a looking toward the future, creating a new understanding of the past so that we can look to the future. I think there's just been a really like exciting strain of fiction writing that's trying to do that. Yeah, that's so important. And it strikes me as being really a powerful counter narrative against this idea that I think certain parts of our intellectual ecosystem have been presenting about this move towards more acknowledging the sins of America that, you know, there's this sense that like, oh, they're just bringing us down. They're teaching the kids to hate America. You know, they're trying to make it seem like we were always this terrible place and we won't be able to feel proud to be Americans anymore. Um, When actually these new stories open up ways to not only be more honest about our history and and the, some of the terrible things that as a country we've done in the past, but also create new possibilities for being happy and joyful and, and playful in new and inclusive ways in the future. So I want to talk a little bit about the history of the Western. So where does this sort of American myth of white guys on horses just sort of driving across the prairie. Where does that idea emerge? Yeah, so it sort of emerges over time. But I mean, there there are a couple of, you know, sort of foundational texts. One that gets cited a lot is called The Virginian. And it's very much what you think of when you think of a Western. It's like a guy, he comes from back east. He shows up in, in Wyoming, in Medicine Bow, Wyoming, where I actually went a little bit as part of my research. He's basically there to make his fortune He encounters various tough guys. And, you know, insofar as indigenous people come up, like they're generally antagonists or, you know, they're sort of also depicted just like a danger of the landscape, like, you know, something that you like watch out for or like a weather condition or something as opposed to people. You know, I mean, there are kind of our our women mentioned. Um, I think there's a romance plot a little bit, but it's not necessarily the focus. You know, so I think to some degree that book lays down some tropes. There are others over time that sort of build on that. And then obviously in film, so in John Wayne movies and then in spaghetti westerns, you know, sort of those tropes keep getting re-inscribed. And again, in particular, the kind of treating indigenous people as scenery at best, villains at worst, tends to happen. At a certain point, I would say in the 20th century, you start to see more kind of revisions of this and more sort of people in various ways, Cormac McCarthy and others kind of trying to revisit the Western a little bit and make it a little bit more interesting. And then really, I think in the last three to five years, there's sort of been 
you know, even a greater move, including a greater move by a diverse array of authors to sort of revisit it further. I'm thinking of how much of these hills is gold again, but there's also a novel called In the Distance by Hernan Diaz. My former colleague, The New York Times, described it as a weird Western, which I love and I think is very apt. Taya Obrett's novel Inland is sort of an example of this. I haven't read uh, The Cold Millions by Jess Walter that came out last year, but, you know, you could argue it has like neo-Western elements. So I think, you know, sort of now as we like head into 2020s, there there seems to be increasingly, I think, a desire to sort of revisit some of this and look at, you know, what was left out and whose perspectives sort of haven't been represented. And one of the things that I love about the way you're doing some of that revisiting in Outlawed is it's not only a Western, but there's also romance tropes in here. Um, there's this part where you learn that Ada is going to have to choose to make a marriage of convenience with this guy that she's sort of been quietly crushing on in the background of the book. And I just like sat up and was like, yes, it's the best romance trope. So how did you think about combining these story ideas that are classically shoved off into like the woman's ghetto with a genre that's as macho as the Western? I love that. I mean, I didn't like I have to tell you until uh, until you mentioned that I wasn't totally aware this was a romance trope. I think um, it's a great romance trope. That makes total sense. It's funny, like as having a book come out in the pandemic has made me way more familiar with Bookstagram. That's been so interesting for me because Bookstagrammers read so widely and read across genres so much. It's been actually very inspiring in terms of, you know, I like makes me want to broaden my horizons as a reader and a writer. You know, certainly when I set out to write this book, I had a lot of sort of influences in mind. And, you know, I definitely wanted to play with genre, as, as I've talked about. I mean, you know, I mentioned my writing group a lot, but they are really big influences on me. And I think we're, we're big influences on each other. And a lot of um, my friends in that group have been sci-fi and speculative fiction writers. You know, my first novel is sort of a dystopia. So we kind of like have a history of working in genre and or working at the intersections of literary and genre. So sort of when I was setting out to write this, part of me was like, oh, Western, like that's a different genre that I haven't necessarily experimented with before. But, you know, that's a fruitful place where I can try to do some interesting work. But I've always been interested in genre fiction and genre art of different types. So one big influence on the book is the Crazy Cat comics, which were mm. newspaper comics in the 19-teens and 1920s. Features Crazy Cat, a cat who is in love with Ignat's mouse, a mouse. But Crazy Cat uses different pronouns at different times. And this is something that the creator, George Harriman, was very intentional about. And Crazy Cat's gender is fluid in these really interesting ways, especially for the time period. And it's also a Western. So it's set in, you know, in this sort of cartoon version of Arizona. There's like a sheriff named Officer Pup. You know, there's various Western tropes. And... So I was thinking about that and comics to some degree while I was writing this. And also sort of like, how has the West been kind of a liminal space? You know, this idea of the quote unquote frontier. And obviously, you know, the idea that it was ever a frontier is problematic in any number of ways. But it is true that for some people who might have been stigmatized in other places, for example, for their gender presentation, found a place where they were less stigmatized in the West. You know, so that was all kind of swirling around in my head. And it was interesting, too, you know, when we were talking about this a while back, you kind of mentioned the idea of a Shakespearean Greenwood. So mm. um, 
That was definitely in my mind too. And especially when we get to the the sort of marriage of convenience section, I actually was thinking a lot about the marriage of Romeo and Juliet. So, oh. you know, the father who ends up marrying them, I think it's Father Lawrence, mm-hmm. was sort of an inspiration as I was writing the character of the priest who performs the marriage in, in my book. And so I think just broadly speaking, you know, like Shakespeare was one of the earliest inventors or popularizers of romance tropes, right? I mean, those, you know, those comedies are basically romances. I mean, I know he wrote things that are called romances also, but... Whole different thing. Whole different thing. And those comedies play a lot with gender, obviously, and also often take place in the woods or sort of in liminal spaces. You know, I'm thinking about Midsummer Night's Dream here. So again, you know, Romeo and Juliet, not a comedy, but I definitely, you know... Up until the last... Party, basically. <laughs> but a love story. I certainly was thinking about some of the more sort of playful aspects of Shakespeare plays as I was writing these. Yeah. And that trope is just such a fun one because it's just like, oh, no, there's nothing I can do but marry someone I'm attracted to. Like, what's going to happen next? Which, as I understand it, is like half the premise of Bridgerton. What are you going to do? All right, we're going to take another short break. But when we come back... The alternative history of Outlaw depicts a flu pandemic that radically reorders what was once the USA. So what is it like to read this book now, during our pandemic? And what have we been learning about gender and the role of women in our present moment? That's after the break. Support for The Gray Area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God, but I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. 
I want to turn now to a little bit about how we can look at this book right now in this weird present moment we're living in. So the alternate history in this book, as you said, emerges from a pandemic, which causes this giant rethinking of the appropriate role of women and their bodies and their sexuality. So how do you think that enormous events like the pandemic that we're currently living through change the way we think about gender? I think that's something that we are certainly beginning to see affect things like the women's job crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll start by saying that I had finished this book when the pandemic started. I was like working on copy edits when things here in New York City started to shut down. And so, you know, I certainly didn't expect this particular resonance, but here we are. I mean, in the book, something that I try to make clear is, you know, that while things are very bad for Ada at various points in the book. I didn't want this to be necessarily a dystopia, more just like, Mm. you know, this is an alternate way that things could have gone, which is worse in some ways, but perhaps not in all ways. I mean, so some things that happen in the book, we know, for example, there are female characters in the book who have a lot of children, uh, and that gives them actually a lot of social power. Mm -hmm. So for example, Ada's mother is a midwife and has several children of her own biologically. And so she's actually allowed to kind of do what she wants within reason, much more so perhaps than an unmarried woman might have in real life reality 1894, you know, because she has this sort of social capital that's based on her reproductive abilities. So that was a way that I wanted to work through, like, this sort of devastating event, the fictional pandemic that happens in the book. How does it change and sort of reorder society? And, you know, now what we're living through, I've been talking to historians a little bit about previous pandemics. And I think, unfortunately, what has often happened is that previous pandemics have done exactly what COVID-19 has already done, which is sort of underscore and widen inequality. You know, so we've seen that already in terms of death rates in Black and Latinx communities. And we've seen it in terms of women in the workplace. So, you know, we've seen women dropping out of the workforce in enormous, huge numbers. We've seen women of color being disproportionately hard hit in terms of unemployment and then also overrepresented in essential worker jobs where um, they may not be getting appropriate protections. They may not be getting hazard pay. I've been really concerned as the vaccine rollout continues about what we're going to see in terms of equity there. And I think in a larger sense, there's been a few few sort of forces. You know, one Mm -hmm. was that right at the beginning of this pandemic, a lot of the industries that saw the most layoffs and the biggest impact were industries that had a lot of women employees who did not make a high salary. So service industries, hospitality, domestic work. These are industries where there are a lot of women working for not a lot of money with not a lot of job protections. And so the sort of like initial quote unquote women's recession that we saw, you know, like we're still in that for a lot of women, like people lost their jobs and they didn't get them back. So there's that. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you have the fact that schools and in a lot of places, daycare centers were closed for months. In some cases, schools have been closed for this entire year. So the added onus of childcare and managing homeschooling, we know from surveys has disproportionately fallen on women. 
And I think there's been a tendency sometimes to frame that as somehow a middle-class problem, but, but we know that women in poverty have been hit really hard by this. We know that single moms have actually been some of the most likely to drop out of the workforce to care for children, even though they might not have necessarily, you know, another source of income to fall back on. And at the same time, we've also seen women overrepresented in childcare and teaching, where they are often really afraid for their health and for their lives if they go back. And certainly under the Trump administration, did not see the kind of assurances or the kind of public health leadership that they might have needed to feel safe. So basically, it's a huge mess. And I think we've seen women and anyone who is raising kids and anyone who is working some of these service industry jobs really hit the hardest in a lot of ways by this pandemic. And I've been encouraged by some of the policy that I've been seeing in the last few months. I'm encouraged by the momentum I think I see on childcare policy and by some of the provisions that are in the recovery package currently being discussed. But, you know, my worry is that this pandemic will, insofar as it reshapes the way we think about gender will just like re-inscribe the things that were already really crappy about being a woman in America. The only sort of, I hate the phrase silver lining because it implies that like it was good that we had this pandemic and any of us, we would all choose not to have it and just to have like some reform by a better means. Um, but, you know, I guess the only thing is that I do feel that the pandemic has shown a certain light on just the difficulties of raising children and how important a job childcare is. And when I talk to childcare providers and when I talk to people that study childcare, you know, they all feel that the eyes of the world and of the country are on them in a way that they often felt forgotten before this. Mm -hmm. So... You know, again, like the issue of raising kids is only like a tiny part of all these interlocking parts. But I am hopeful that this time in all of our lives has sort of shown us that like this particular workforce of childcare workers who are majority women, a lot of whom are women of color, this is an incredibly important and skilled workforce and, you know, needs respect and money and benefits. I have some hope that that might come out of this. And it's so wild to look at how the problem of child care and paid child care in America is just tied into larger questions of misogyny, right? Not only because it's care work, which is traditionally gendered as a woman's job and henceforth undervalued, but also because so much of our national refusal to have universal paid child care comes out of a desire to disincentivize women from the workforce and make them stay home and take care of the kids instead. So it all interlocks together in... Fun, terrible ways. <laughs> so speaking, I guess, of this reactionary element in American politics, we're having this conversation not all that long after former President Trump was impeached for his role in sparking the Capitol insurrection. And at that insurrection, we saw people storming the Capitol with Confederate flags and other extreme far-right paraphernalia in this moment that seemed like a kind of violent crescendo to this increasingly reactionary Trump era that we're now hopefully coming out of. And one thing that really strikes me about Outlawed is you get the villains of the sheriff's posse who sort of stand for the idea of, if I might, law and order, and who are just 
ontologically offended by this group of outlaws who are not conforming to ideas about gender and race and class that the sheriffs believe they should. And the sheriff's posse and the insurrectionists in the Capitol seem to be sharing a similar feeling of outrage and a sense that they are rescuing their country from perversion. But what's sort of heartbreaking is, you know, in real life, we didn't even really get a hole in the wall, right? We didn't turn America into a beautiful free-for-all where everyone's playing with their sense of self and their identity and draped in flowers and singing that song from Twelfth Night. You know, we took like two steps in that direction, maybe. And then the, the sheriff's posse came riding in. So I guess my question for you is, how do you think about maintaining that sense of freedom and joy and pleasure and playing in a moment where all of those things seem to be under attack? Yeah, this is a great question. This book came out one day before the Capitol riot. So that was certainly... Happy publication yeah, day. Um, certainly a strange a strange week for, for everyone. And certainly more so for, for others than for me. But it was a lot of whiplash is what I'll say. To answer this question, one thing I'll say is that when I talk about whether or not this book is a dystopia, one thing I say is that there are aspects of the book that I actually think are kind of utopian. And one aspect of that is is the hole in the wall, you know, is the sort of place that's a safe haven for those who have been outlawed. And it's not perfect and the kid isn't perfect, but it is, I think, like, you know, I want it to be a sort of like a really radical experiment in communal living and communal decision making and also just in, you know, celebration. And as you say, sort of in taking joy from the humanity of every person who is a part of it. And at the beginning of the book, it's very small. It's like about 10 people. At the end, you know, we start to see it grow. You know, I won't do too many spoilers. But I think when I was first imagining this group of people, I really imagined it as, you know, a small community. And what can a small community offer those community members? And one thing that has been, if not comforting, then at least to some degree inspiring during the pandemic is that we have seen communities come together to support one another I've been really inspired by the rise of mutual aid groups in the last year. You know, obviously a lot of them were operating before, but have gotten sort of even more donations and more participation. And the sense of sort of neighbors coming together to support one another. I'm thinking about folks marching together last summer and opening their homes to marchers, even during a time of COVID, so that people could have a haven from arrest. Like, I think we've seen, you know, really people at a community and neighborhood level come together to embrace one another. And that is something that sort of continues to give me hope in the wake of things like the riot and in a time when I think we still have a lot of questions about how the new administration is going to address the various problems before us. It's a presidential administration, so I expect to be disappointed um, in some way. Always a good call. And at the same time, I feel like people together in sort of their chosen families and their chosen communities have shown real strength and joy in this year of incredible trauma. And I think that will continue to happen. And it's a shame that there is this backdrop of trauma that people have to keep responding to. But I have been really inspired by people's responses at sort of the most grassroots of levels. And I don't think that's going to change. 
Great. Well, I think that is a fantastic place to end things. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening to Vox Conversations. This week's episode was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered this episode. Theme music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson's our executive producer and editorial director of Vox Podcasts. As always, if you like the show, let us know. But also, if you don't like the show, let us know. Send us an email, voxconversations at vox.com is the address. Again, send us an email. Let us know what you think of the show or what you would like to hear on the show or anything you're thinking about the show. Vox Conversations at vox.com. Thank you.